at the beginning of a new year. Uh, we're just going to take this one week before we jump into a new sermon series, Crazy Love, which has to do with, with our just massive, overwhelming love for God. Um, we're going to take a week to remind ourselves of who we are as a church. Uh, we're going to talk this morning about Cornerstone's three distinctives. Uh, now, our distinctives here at Cornerstone, and you'll see them here on the screen, the gospel, the greatest commandment, the whole counsel of God, uh, these are not unique to Cornerstone. Uh, they are distinctive, really, of every church. And these three concepts are not the only concepts that we emphasize here at Cornerstone, but our distinctives are an attempt to help us to focus on the most important things. In a sense, our distinctives are a way of summarizing the message of the Bible, let me give you a few examples here of good plot summaries. How about this one? In a world where technology exists to enter the human mind through dream invasion, a highly skilled thief is given a final chance at redemption. That would be a summary of what movie? Inception, right. How about this one? A couple falls in love and agrees to meet in six months at the Empire State Building, but will it happen? Yeah? An affair to remember. Oh. Yeah, how about this one? A misogynistic and snobbish phonetics professor agrees to a wager that he can take a flower girl and make her presentable in high society. My fair lady. You're looking at me like I'm crazy, Danelle. Am I crazy? Here's another summary of a great plot. A wandering gunfighter plays two rival families against each other in a town torn apart by greed, pride, and revenge. Anyone? Um, uh, what was that? A fistful of dollars. Good job. Yeah. You're married to a man. How about this one? In a future where the polar ice caps have melted and most of Earth is underwater, a mutated mariner reluctantly helps a woman to find dry land. <laughs> Waterworld, yes. Yes, your favorite movie. One more. One more. This is, this is for the advanced class. A psychotic socialite confronts a pro tennis star with a theory on how two complete strangers can get away with murder. 1951. No? No? Hitchcock. Strangers on a Train. Is that what you said? Yeah? Yeah. I love that movie. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Don't go see that movie. I have no idea what that movie's about. I just I got that off the internet. <laughs> now, these are summaries of complex stories, and they're accurate summaries, and the same can be done with really almost any subject. You take science or literature or history, and you can boil it down to essential parts, and then with the really great stuff, with the really interesting stuff, and particularly with biblical stuff, you can take any of those essential parts and spend really a lifetime exploring the infinite glory and complexities of those things. Our three distinctives are an attempt at doing that, at summarizing the things of first importance in the Bible, the things which help us focus. Now, we have a tendency to become distracted and to emphasize things of secondary importance. It's just what our hearts do. It's what 
It's what churches do. We tend to emphasize the wrong things and we tend to sideline the stuff that is actually the most important because we think, yes, 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 we know that and let's move on to something really interesting. But these things, these three things are things that cannot be theological benchwarmers and they are the gospel, the greatest commandment and the whole counsel of God. So let's spend some time exploring the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul says to the Corinthian church, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When we talk about the gospel here at Cornerstone, we mean basically three different things. First, the propositional truths of the gospel. Second, the ethical implications of the gospel. And third, the evangelism that we do with the gospel. So first of all, the propositional truth of the gospel. What I mean by propositional truth is that there are things, there are things that we have to say or write or read uh, and understand about the gospel. This is the gospel, uh, the, the doctrine of it, the theology of it, the intellectual content. And First and foremost, this is what we mean to emphasize as a church here at Cornerstone, the intellectual content or the propositional truth of the gospel. Uh, Now, I am not a perfect person. You spend a few hours with me and you will be able to scientifically verify that. Uh, You will begin to see brokenness. Uh, Just you'll see it on my face. You'll see it in the way that I interact with people. You see it in the way that I deal with conflict and so on. Uh, You'll see brokenness. You'll see worse than brokenness. And I've looked into my heart over and over, and I've seen awful things. Uh, I've seen the worst things. Um, And why am I like this? It is because I am a sinner. Uh, Same as you. And I will have to give an account to God of how I've lived my life, how I've treated people, how I've thought and felt about things. And the punishment for rebelling against God in any of those areas Uh, is really as bad as it gets. The Bible calls it hell. It is a place that he has created of eternal punishment. And the Bible describes hell like being in a fire and never actually being burnt up. Always experience the pain of being in a fire, but never, never actually being burnt. Now, human beings without salvation have nothing to expect from the future except crushing guilt and nothing that we can really do about that, uh, and eternal anguish. But the Bible has the answer for this problem. The Bible solves this problem. It is not the answer, though, that you might think. The Bible is not filled with how to clean ourselves up and live a good life so that God will like me. That is not what the Bible is about, although that is what we assume the Bible is about. If I can just read this and figure out how to treat my spouse and how to handle my money and how to be a nice person and so on, then I can be a good person and good people go to heaven. But that is not the message of the Bible. If we approach the Bible in that way, then we will never have any real assurance of our standing with God. There there will always be more that we can do. There will always be a higher bar And we'll always have this sense like you have in college where, you know, you could always spend a little bit more. You could always read a little bit more. You could always write a little bit more. You could always get a higher grade and so on. The Bible is not about how to get cleaned up for God. The Bible is about how God has cleaned us up through Jesus Christ. Now, we aim at righteousness and constantly miss the mark. We aim at our brothers and sisters and we... 
hurt them. And God takes all of that sin and he puts the guilt of it on Jesus Christ and God the Father kills him for that sin. And if we will confess our sins to that God, then he will wash away your sins. Now, this is the intellectual content of the gospel. It is the basic doctrine of the gospel. There are a thousand different ways to articulate what I just said. If I were to do it again right now, I would do it differently. It's not a matter of memorizing this or that. But that is the basic propositional truth of the gospel. And that, in some form, has to be understood in order for salvation to occur, in order for someone to convert, in order for someone to be saved. And more than simply understanding the gospel, it must be received. Very similar to how we're going to take the communion element later this morning. We take the cracker, we take the grape juice, and we put them in our mouth and we swallow it as an example of internalizing the gospel, which is represented here by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. We take these things, we put them in us, we internalize it. It's an example of what faith is like. Uh, And see, the, the intellectual content of the gospel, the propositional truth of the gospel must be believed in. We must have faith in these things, and they have got to go all through us. As the prison guard asks Paul and Silas in Acts 16.30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Now, when we truly understand that message... And when we internalize the gospel, then we know how to be on good terms with God, which requires a certain awareness of why we are not on good terms. See, in order to understand the gospel, in order to receive the gospel, we have to be fairly humble. We have to recognize, well, here's why I'm not on good terms with God unless the gospel is true. And... The gospel also produces in us not only humility, but also gratitude because we see this free gift of Jesus Christ paying the penalty that we deserved of this imputed righteousness of God giving us the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the eternal life of Jesus Christ. These things are all just free gifts that are given to any who will repent for their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And so there's this humility that is produced within people who understand the gospel. And there is this gratitude which ends up becoming worship uh, among those who understand the gospel. Micah 7, 19 says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Uh, That's a wonderful, beautiful visual of what happens with our sin. We don't come to God and say, gosh, here I am. I'm really sorry. Here I am, the big big screw-up, the one that you told what to do, and I didn't do it again. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And we kind of shuffle off. But it is, it is the prodigal son with the father where he gives this huge big bear hug because Jesus Christ suffered the penalty for all of that sin. And so that is the gospel. And this simplicity and this dependability of that simple gospel message creates a strong sense of assurance that all things work together for good. And that is the ground for the rest of the Christian life. Worship, joy, peace. I mean, the Bible talks about peace that passes all understanding. The Bible says crazy things like rejoice always. Well, the reason the Bible can do that and the reason that people like us, sinners like us with hideous things in our hearts, the reason that people like us can worship and and rejoice always and have peace that passes all understanding is because we have faith in the propositional truth of the gospel. 
we recognize the incomparable and incalculable value of salvation, and that produces humility and worship. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The people who understand the gospel don't need, don't require the flocks to work and the grass to grow and any of that stuff. We don't require any earthly thing because God satisfies our deepest need, which is reconciliation with God the Father. Tim Keller says, and you've heard me quote this, but it's one of the best quotes I know. Tim Keller says, We are weaker and more sinful than we ever before believed but also more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. C.J. Mahaney wrote, One pronounced effect of preaching the gospel to my soul is joy. I'm the worst sinner I know, and given the countless sins I've been forgiven of, as I contemplate the Savior's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for my sins, the effect of that contemplation in my life is joy. So from the outset of every day, I seek to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. I seek to study the doctrines of grace. I seek to prepare my heart to discern evidences of grace throughout the day. And as I, de- and as I devote myself to those practices at the outset of each day and throughout the day, the effect upon my soul is joy. You see, what Mahaney is saying here is that the grounds for his joy, his capacity for being joyful is directly corresponds to how he starts his day and what he does throughout his day which is reflecting on the gospel you see the gospel is not just how we start the christian life it it isn't that we just go through the the four spiritual laws and then move on to something else more interesting and important the gospel is the beginning of the christian life and it is the center of the christian life it is the beginning of every day of the christian life as we reflect on this great and awesome, this just and holy, this terrible but gracious and loving God who sent Jesus to die for our sins. So there's intellectual content. There's propositional truth. And it must be understood. It's not necessarily complex. A child can understand these things. I'm using the word intellectual simply to say that this is something that has to be articulated. It's a truth, it's a truth that has to be stated in some way, but it doesn't need to be academic that's something that a, that a four- and five-year-old, a three-year-old can begin to understand some of these concepts and put them together. It doesn't take any IQ to grasp the propositional truth of the gospel, but the propositional truth of the gospel must be grasped in order for us to be saved. And so when we talk about the gospel, this is the first thing that we mean, that there is propositional truth to be understood. And another aspect of the gospel that is important to Cornerstone is the example of Jesus Christ in laying down his life for his friends and all of the ethical implications thereof. 1 John 3.16, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, notice, Christ-like love is not sentimentalism. Oh, you're so cute, and we like spending time with each other, and all that... It is practiced, Christ-like love is practiced through blood and tears. Christ-like love is bloody love. 1 Peter 2.19 
For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing. May God bless us with the ability to do gracious things for each other in our church family. And so this this aspect of the gospel that we're emphasizing here is the example of Jesus Christ in laying down his life for his friends and all of the ethical implications of how we ought to treat other people uh, by following the example of Jesus Christ. Uh, The love of God is a gospel-based, enduring love. And one more aspect of the gospel that is important to Cornerstone, and that is evangelism. It is telling other people this good news, this greatest possible news. Most people here in America and in our own neighborhoods do not know the gospel. You know that there are 340 million people on this planet who do not have a Bible in their own language. That represents about 2,100 languages that the Bible has not been translated into. And so there's a great work being done by Wycliffe Bible translators and many others who are either helping some of these folks to learn languages that the Bible is written in or writing the Bible in those languages. But it is a great work. And here we all sit while that work needs to be done. And so we need to be reminded of the importance of missions in this world, that there is a gospel that must be proclaimed to some whole countries that have never heard the gospel. And we do all of this. We do this evangelism. We do this missions by asking God to create opportunities for us to clearly and boldly and graciously articulate the propositional truth of the gospel. Colossians 4, 3 to 6, Paul says, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I, 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 I can't help myself by saying that the way that the gospel needs to be explained, this graciousness, this seasoned with salt, is never demonstrated on Fox News. I just have to say that because there's this assumption that uh, republicanism equals Christianity and we can go ahead and be rudely uh, combative in the way that we defend our Christian country. That's not a Christian position. That might be a Mormon position, but it is not a Christian position for us to argue in that way. Let me read this to you again, Colossians 4, 3 to 6. Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Then he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So to to summarize this first distinctive, the gospel, which again, I just want to emphasize, is not unique It's not distinctive to Cornerstone. It's distinctive to the church. But to summarize this distinctive, a Christian life is a life that is activated by the truth of the gospel. It is grateful for the grace of the gospel. It is inspired by the example of the gospel. And it is zealous about the mission of the gospel. That's what we mean when we talk about the gospel here at Cornerstone. Our second distinctive is the greatest commandment. 
Jonathan Edwards wrote, That religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes, raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God and his word greatly insists upon it that we be good in earnest, fervent in spirit, and our hearts vigorously engaged in religion. When Jesus was asked, you know, teacher, what, what's the greatest commandment? He responded in Mark twelve thirty, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, our problem, and I say our problem, I realize, you know, some of you are thinking, I've never met this guy. How does he know what my problem is? The reason I know what your problem is is because you are human and I'm human and we have this problem. And the problem is that sometimes, maybe always, we like God, but we don't love him. We enjoy church services, but we don't stand in awe before a glorious God. We agree with the doctrines of Scripture, but we don't hunger for the Word. We don't just burst out into song for the Lamb who was slain. What is the chief end of man to glorify and enjoy God forever? But we frankly enjoy other people and things and experiences more than God. Listen to the psalmist preach to himself while his so-called friends batter him in Psalm 62. He says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. What? I shall not be shaken. My sin-sick heart waits for many things in addition to God. Yes, yes, I love God and I want Jesus to return, but what I really want is my children to make good choices and I... And what I really want is for my job to make me happy. And what I really want is for my marriage to be romantic and my body to work right and for this and for that and all these things that we add to what we really need in order to be joyful. Friend, life is filled with problems. And there is nothing wrong with crying and exasperation at the grave of a friend as our Lord did. But we can never forget that there is nothing in this world that can save us. Nothing. No thing. No one. As we lay desolate and barren, we shall not be shaken if our highest hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Our problem, the Bible is honest enough to tell us, is called idolatry. This is what a sin-sick heart does. We idolize things we love things inordinately idolatry is not necessarily the love of something evil it is usually the love of something good that we love too much we we crave it we we must have it and david Powelson calls these false saviors the young girl puts her highest hope in a certain boy asking her out a young man puts his hope in in the acne clearing up or making the baseball team and when we crave these things as ultimate things as must-have things, then what we have there is a false savior. What we have done is we have displaced God from that place that only he is worthy of filling, and we have put something else there. 
And this is not only a fool's errand because nothing lasts in this world, but it is also very offensive to God. And this is the point that I want to especially emphasize. I'm not telling you how to be happy. I'm not saying if you'll just get this point, you'll have a more enjoyable Christian life. I think it's important to say that if we live our lives in the way that God explains, then they are generally more peaceful and joyful and so on. But the most important thing I think to emphasize here is that it is offensive to snuggle idols. Hosea 4.12, my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. That's strong language, but we have to see here that say we miss a meal because we're with family and it doesn't work out and now all of a sudden I get cranky and what happens in those situations is that I'm communicating to my family before God that a burger is more significant to me than Jesus Christ. That's just, I mean, it's kind of silly, but it's offensive to idolize anything, to inordinately love anything. We cannot find any settled contentment in the things, people, and experiences of this world. The hope of romance, the hope of a balanced checkbook, the respect of friends and family, none of these things are worthy of worship. They are good things, but they are not worthy of worship. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Isaiah 55.2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Psalm 107.8-9, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. When we love other things, people, and experiences inordinately, then we ruin our ability to experience any real joy. We ruin the people around us because our cravings become demands. Our cravings become refusals to give. And this is why we can't talk about the greatest commandment without talking about the one that is like it. Christ said in Mark 12, 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. These two commands move us out of the black hole that is our heart. And our hearts are black holes. If you try to love God above all earthly treasures, you will find fairly quickly that you are impotent to do so. (laughs) If you try to love God above all earthly treasures, you will find yourself wanting to experience an emotion that isn't coming. If you try to love someone truly, to get over the prejudices, to get over the disappointments and really love someone, you will find yourself far short of the glory of God. And so here again, we find ourselves at God's mercy with nothing but needy prayers, confessing the sin of idolatry and begging for him to break us free because here's the truth. The only power to, to, break our, to break our affections away from ourselves and to put them on God and others, the only power for that is the Holy Spirit himself. Amen. Psalm fifty-one, fifteen, the psalmist, after confessing outrageous sin, says, 
O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. This is a man who recognizes that this is the time when I ought to be praising God, but I am so ruined. God, open my lips. Galatians 5.22 gives us the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in our lives. The, the, the effect, the outcome of having the Holy Spirit active in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That stuff doesn't happen unless God gives us a new heart. May God be gracious and generous as we pray for the Spirit to teach us how to love Him and others. Our third distinctive is the whole counsel of God. We've covered the gospel, we've covered the greatest commandment, and now finally the whole counsel of God. Paul told the Ephesian church, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Acts twenty twenty seven. Now, we, we, we could have just said the Bible, you know, but I think it's important to say the whole counsel of God because we tend to obsess over a few pages of Scripture and never go anywhere else in Scripture. And it's important for us to recognize that all of these words are alive and it is the only book like this on earth where it is living and active. And it has this way of, of powerfully coming into situations and making substantive change. This is the word of God. These are the very words of God. And so it is important for us to recognize that we must not shrink from the whole counsel of God, which includes some doctrines that we don't like very much. We tend to know, yes, yes, I know that chapter of the Bible, but I don't really like it very much, so I'm not going to study it. Or yes, 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 I know that theology, but it bothers me, and so I'd rather not really explore that very much. We'll just leave that one to someone else, because I like this doctrine over here. And we become very imbalanced in the way that we eat this book. And so this is why we selected the phrase, the whole counsel of God. I think it's important for a church and for leaders throughout the church to train others how to jump in to all of Scripture. What, what are the resources that I need in order for understanding Habakkuk? I mean, this isn't something to just pick up and start reading. It has a historical context, and there are all kinds of concepts that are difficult. How do we do this? How do we jump into Habakkuk? How do we jump into Zephaniah? How do we understand what's going on in Nehemiah? Uh, it's easy to pick up the book of the Psalms, and it's important to pick up the book of the Psalms. It's intended to be easy access, because here we are, emotional disasters, and we need the ability to just have God speak for us from time to time. We need the liturgy of the Psalms, but we need to be good at studying the whole counsel of God because the Bible is the ultimate authority over our lives. It's not just an interesting piece of literature, good for us to, to learn, but this is, this is an authority over our lives. Joshua 1.8, God tells Joshua before he takes uh, the people into battle, he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. See, the Bible is an authority over our lives. And if it is an authority, then it is worth the study that we put into it 
uh, not just during a, a season of our lives, but on a daily basis that the word of God does not depart from our lips. The word of God is a great power, Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, in this respect, we've been just a bit ruined by, say, television and, uh, and newspapers and so on. There's nothing wrong with those things. But we're very used to being able to just pick up Newsweek and have instant understanding of whatever is being presented there or turning on a television show. And by the time I'm done with Columbo, I've basically understood, you know, who did the murder and why and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, and so we're used to not really having to engage our minds much. But if you've read any literature, and particularly if you've read this literature, then you know that it is designed to engage your mind. And so if you're in a moment of distress or just thinking, well, you know, I, sh I should really read the Bible, and so where should I read? How about this? And I read a paragraph, and I'm like, it's not really doing anything for me. Well, you know, we talk about meditation. Christian meditation is very different from all other forms of meditation because because in other forms of meditation, uh, we empty our minds in order to experience this peaceful experience or so on. But with the Bible, we meditate by thinking as clearly as we can and thinking hard about certain subjects. And we gnaw on it like a dog on a bone. And we ruminate on Scripture. And if we do this, uh, as I said about a month ago, it's a little bit like trying to start a fire. I mean, we have cold hearts. And so you start a fire in a, on a cold night with some little bit wet wood or something and it takes some time and it takes some work but eventually you're standing around this roaring, great, awesome thing. It is worth the time that we put into really thinking through what the Word is saying to us and we will find, if we will give it that time and give it that respect, that it is an authority and a great power. The Word of God is clear. The Word of God is understandable. It is not something that can be mastered. There is no one who can master the content of the Bible or any concept of the Bible. But you can understand certain concepts of the Bible because it was written by God. And God created us. And he created this book to communicate with us. And if God wants to communicate with his creation, then he can do it as clearly as he wants to. And so God has said many things in this book that are entirely clear enough for us to understand. He has also said a lot of other things that are mysterious. And so we debate it and so on. And he says a lot of things that we don't even know how to debate because I don't even know who are the Nephilim and I don't know and what's with Noah and all that. I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of things we don't know. I don't know what percentage, maybe half of the Bible. You think, not totally sure what's going on here. But there are plenty of things that God is entirely sufficiently clear about so that it can be understood by us. And the re, you know, people will say today, especially, well, God wrote the Bible and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so you can't really understand the Bible. And so I think it means this. Well, you know, if God, the creator, created us and he wrote this and he did it in order to say something to us, isn't it rational to think that God could communicate clearly to his people? And he does so sufficiently clearly about things like, say, the gospel. It is possible for us to understand the gospel sufficiently for salvation. But if you go into any piece of the gospel, 
you will never be able to probe the infinite depth and glories of the gospel. You can read a thousand books on various aspects of the gospel. You'll never master the gospel, but you can understand the gospel sufficiently enough to feel confident and assured in your salvation. And so it is worthy of serious study because it is understandable. And another thing that we often discuss here at Cornerstone is that the Bible is not something for the task list. And I have to be careful here because it is important for us to be disciplined in the way that we go about reading. Here we are at the beginning of a new year. and We're talking about New Year's resolutions and, and so on. You know, if you're going to build a building, you need a plan. You don't just show up and start throwing this or that together. If you want to grow spiritually, you also need a plan. It doesn't just happen. Uh, you've got to have some kind of process of thinking, okay, well, now this year I'm going to focus on that or I'm going to read this book or these, these books or something. Something like, I'm going to get into this Bible study. You've got to have some kind of plan. Uh, if it's worthy of serious study, if it's understandable and worthy of serious study, if it is an authority over our lives, if it is a power for any problem that we face in this world, if it is all those things and is worthy of serious study, and we ought to have a plan for how we go about doing that study. But at the same time, it's important for us to approach the Bible w with a hunger, not just, oh, I should really do this so that I'm a good Christian and I can tell everybody at church that I read through the Bible in a year. Um, that's not the purpose of the Bible. If, if that's the way that we go about the Bible, uh, then we're going to miss the great power of it because we're trying to use it for something. As we as we read the Bible and as we study the Bible and as we listen to the teaching and the preaching of the Bible, then we feel God doing certain things in our hearts and in our minds and changing things around and, and, and we begin to develop a hunger for the Bible so that even though we might hold the Bible at arm's length from time to time because we're still sinners and we tend to not do the things that even we know we ought to do, we begin to develop this hunger for the Bible. The Bible is not like eating broccoli. It's not going to do this because it's good for you. There is, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's nothing more, there, I almost said nothing more better than, than the Bible. You see, you don't have to be smart to read the Bible or even teach the Bible. But we have got to study the Bible. And listen, listen to this. In 2 Kings chapter 22, there was this young king, he was a teenager named Josiah, and the country had uh, ruined itself under King Manasseh and become very idolatrous and had started to use the temple for totally different things and nobody even had a Bible anymore. I mean, people just didn't even have a copy of the word anymore and so Josiah decided he was going to clean things up and somebody was seriously like cleaning out the temple and found a copy of the Bible and they brought it to uh, Shaphan who was the secretary of the king and Shaphan was like, we were cleaning out the temple and we found this book. And listen to this. Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. This is not just some insignificant bunch of words that, you know, old ladies get excited about. There's nothing wrong with old ladies, but I'm just saying, <laughs> we need to edit that one out of the, uh, 
you know what I'm saying, though. This isn't just, this isn't just some ancient thing that, uh, that isn't actually relevant to real life. But if we will take this seriously as an authority over our lives, as a clear, great power that's worthy of our attention, worthy of our study, then what we will find is things in here that make our knees knock. We will find it confronting our sins and we will just want to just, I, I can't even stand up because of what this has just said to me. We will find joys here that, that will bring tears to our eyes and make us just want to shout out in the privacy of our bedrooms. Now, let me just say one thing to the ladies in the room. Uh, uh, One of the things that happened during, say, 1950s, 1960s feminism is you had people responding really badly to a very legitimate problem. I was listening to NPR, and they were talking about uh, uh, people's favorite job experiences from, I think, you know, the 1930s, 1940s. They had all of these older people who were talking about what their jobs were like. And one of these uh, ladies worked at a, a theater, And at the theater, they had child tickets and they had adult tickets. And she said it was very common for a man to come to the the ticket booth to buy tickets and make a joke about how he would buy a child ticket for his wife. You know, and she'd be standing right there and, and kind of, you know, be embarrassed by that. We'll buy a child one for her. But, you know, there, there was a problem. There was a, there was a genuine problem in the way that women were being treated, uh, unfairly and unfair wages and all of these kinds of things. And so there was a very legitimate problem. The problem was that the way of responding to that, rather than uh, being taken care of in the church where it could be seasoned with salt, instead the church didn't seem to be very engaged with the issue and so you had people who were non-Christians who were responding with resentment. And you had all of the kind of, you know, nurse, nurse a grudge type of things and why should I have to stroke the fragile male ego and all of that. And so you had a bad response to a legitimate problem. But now you are in a situation, ladies, where you have access to things like never before. You have access to education. You have access to jobs and so on, like no other time in human history. And I want to encourage you to go as deep as you can in theology. I mean, I believe in complementarianism. I think that men are the head of the home. I think that men are, are, are qualified for... Uh, being elders and women are not. I think the Bible is fairly clear about that. But that does not mean that I think ladies are any less capable of understanding theology. And one of the ways that uh, you'll see women's ministry sometimes go is this kind of um, enjoyment of more of just the devotional material. And devotional material is wonderful. I read devotional material, but I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you. Go for a doctorate in biblical theology. Whether you teach it to yourself, whether you get it online, read theology. Become experts in church history. How would the church be strengthened by, say, three or four women throughout this church that just had just sharp minds for what was going on uh, in 1920s, 1930s, America, when the Princeton theologians were being attacked by all the secularists who were coming from Europe and saying that God does not exist, and they began to flee out of the universities and establish their own Bible colleges, Uh, and we see the same thing happening now with the emergent church. Wouldn't it be nice if there were a group of women here who knew that history and could say, oh, this is familiar, 
We've been here before, and here's what J. Gresham Machen said at the time, and here's what B.B. Warfield said at the time, and here's what we need to say in our own context. Wouldn't it be amazing if you had women throughout our congregation who were experts in systematic theology? I mean, you could just ask them, what did Calvin think about this? What did Luther think about this? What did Wesley think about this? And they'd be able to articulate the differences there. How would the church be strengthened by strong women all through our church who were able to, in appropriate context, even teach men how to understand the Bible and how to have this value for doctrine and theology. And so I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage all of you, but it's easy to kind of push, push a guy to go really far uh, in academics. I want to push you ladies to go really far in academics. Go for the devotional material. I don't have anything, any problem with that. I'm not telling you not to do that and talk about feelings and emotions and all that. I think that's wonderful. Do that. But there is a rational, intellectual side to Christianity that you have got to understand. And you have an opportunity now, like never before, to understand that. And the church would be strengthened if you would go for that. So ladies as three theologians all through the church. That would be my dream here is that 5, 10, 15 years from now is, we've had, is that we'd have two or three women here that have an MA in biblical theology, systematic theology, historical theology, practical theology. I mean, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if our, if our Sunday school classes, we'll have the ladies do that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the ladies who were doing that were experts in theology? Now, some of you are very mature. I don't mean to at all be offensive. Many of you are more mature than I am, ladies. But I'm trying to encourage you to push against the grain of what our culture is telling you, what our evangelical culture is telling you, is that really the most interesting thing you can do as a lady is to figure out how to bake great muffins and and so on. There's more to the Bible. There's more. The Bible is is a big, big book. These words in conclusion here. The Bible is a big, big book. And what our distinctives attempt to do is is summarize some of the most important concepts, concepts that we tend to put on the sideline and assume. And what happens in church history is when a generation assumes something about the Bible, oh yeah, 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 we're going to talk about something more interesting, the next generation loses it and rejects it. We cannot sideline the gospel. We cannot forget that our hearts are the most important thing in terms of how we interact with God and other people. It's about loving God. It's about having zeal for evangelism. It's about having joy and praise in our salvation. It is not merely a rational experience. And so we talk about the gospel. We talk about the greatest commandment. And this is the source for us knowing all of this and growing as Christians is the whole counsel of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this in question three. What do the scriptures principally teach? Answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And so we read through this book and we we, we begin to learn who, who God is and what we are like and what our lives are supposed to be like and And I think there are a couple of things that we can do as a church, and particularly I'm talking to those of you who have influence as leaders or just powerful personalities throughout the church. There are a couple of things we can do in order to help integrate these distinctives into real people's lives. And the first is good shepherding, and the other is good fellowship. Distinctives-based shepherding and distinctives-based fellowship. 
We've talked a lot about shepherding, and I'm not going to talk too much more about that. But here you have this metaphor, this biblical metaphor of what a good leader is like. And if you're teaching anything in this church, if you have any group of people in this church, uh, and, and I'm, I'm meaning fr- from ushers to children's ministry to missions to anything, wherever you are, if you have people around you, you've got to be emphasizing the gospel, the greatest commandment, and the whole counsel of God. And so this is what we mean by distinctives-based shepherding. If we want to really integrate the distinctives into real people's lives, we need leaders throughout the congregation who understand the distinctives and teach the distinctives. Uh, Part of the the beauty of the distinctives is that it's almost a cheat sheet for you as a leader of how do I disciple someone? I don't know how to disciple someone. There's a thousand things in here and I've got, you know, 1,200 pages and how how do I do this? Think about those three things and focus on those three things. You can do that for a lifetime and still be effective. So distinctives-based shepherding and also distinctives-based fellowship. When we gather with each other, let your home be a place that is open to other people, not just the narrow list of people that you like, but let your home be a stranger-loving home that is open. And when your home is open, let it be a place where the gospel and the greatest commandment and the whole counsel of God are talked about. Be the kind of person so that when, 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 when we do your memorial years to come from here, that people will say, that's a guy that whenever you got around him, he was talking about the gospel. That's a lady that whenever we were around him, she was talking about theology and some amazing thing. And I had to admit, theology seemed like taxes until I met her and I realized theology is the knowledge of God and she went deep. Be, be the kind of person in your fellowship that goes farther than just football and, and, and stuff like that. Football's good, and we need to say a little prayer for the Seahawks today. <laughs> Football's good. I'm not saying be a silly person that never, never does anything interesting, but I'm just saying when, when, when people are around you, be the kind of person that engages the heart, you know? We're not an ought-to congregation. I really ought to share the gospel with my neighbor because that's what good Christians do. No, be the kind of person that when you're talking with your friends and you're talking with your neighbors that the gospel is just spilling out because you have this humility and this gratitude that, that creates these kinds of opportunities. I mean, you can't not talk about the gospel with your neighbors and with your friends and with your family because you're a, you're a gospel person and you're somebody who loves God above all earthly treasures. You're somebody who fears God above all earthly powers. And that's visible in, in your face. You can just tell by, the, by somebody's face that this is somebody who has peace that passes all understanding. This is somebody who has, who's rejoices always. So be this kind of a person and let your fellowship be marked by these three distinctives. Let the way that you lead be marked by these three distinctives. And may God bless us as we pursue this. Let me close with these words from, uh, from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, we realize that everything we've talked about today is beyond 